This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, April 3rd, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Well, if you uh, have your Bibles, you open up the book of Matthew, and the last page of Matthew, chapter 28, the last few verses is where we're going to close out our study of Matthew with a perhaps a very well-known passage, or at least one you probably have heard before. But we'll see what the Lord has to say to us today through it. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16, says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this is God's word. We've been spending time, obviously, in the Easter season, going through uh, the death and then the resurrection of Jesus and uh, I need or hope that you understand that when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't continue on up to heaven immediately. Uh, According to the book of Acts, if we were to read the first uh, couple verses of that chapter, you would see that Jesus spent uh, about 40 days with his disciples, speaking to them about the kingdom of God and teaching them, essentially opening their minds to show them the same thing he had shown the disciples in Luke 24, how everything in the Bible Uh, whether it be the writings of Moses or the prophets, how it all had pointed to Jesus, to his life and to his death and to his resurrection. And everything comes to a close, so to speak, on this Mount of Olives where they're standing together. It's the same place that Jesus had preached a very long sermon called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7. And it's a mountain that they have visited many times as a collective of disciples. And this is where Jesus spoke his final instructions to his disciples before ascending to heaven. And by way of reminder, I've said it before, Matthew wrote his gospel as Luke and, and John and Mark wrote theirs with different purposes. Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew's primarily was to defend. He wanted to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. He wrote as a Jew, trying to reach Jews, and he was arguing that Jesus of Nazareth was the Jewish king that Israel had long expected. But Matthew also wrote as a Christian to Christians. And what I mean by that is Matthew's gospel is uh, unique in that it's not just an account of everything that Jesus did to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, it is actually, out of all the Gospels and really all of Scripture, the only account that records, or the most complete account, I should say, that records everything Jesus said, his teaching. It's unique. It's the most comprehensive record of Jesus' direct teaching in the Bible. It is what amounts to the first collection of of Jesus' sayings. In fact, it's what it's called in the early church, the Book of Sayings, because it was so much about Jesus and what he taught. In fact, 60% of the book is Jesus' teaching. It includes his longest sermon, as I said, the Sermon on the Mount, which extends over three chapters. 
And this book, originally, it served probably as, the, as kind of the first theological textbook for the church in the early uh, centuries of uh, the young church to instruct people about God concerning particularly the work and the words of Jesus. And at the very end of his gospel, he reveals kind of this major truth, and that is that first and foremost, Matthew is a teacher. He's revealed that by how he wrote and what he wrote, but also that Jesus is a teacher, and he is in very real way wanting us to be teachers. So you have Matthew, the teacher, teaching us that Jesus is a teacher, wanting us to be teachers. Lots of teachers. That's why I like it, because I'm a teacher. Now, Matthew's final words in his gospel are presumably the last words that Jesus spoke on earth. And these last words, like a last lecture, the last things you're going to say before you go, are often the most important words, the best words. It's known as, and probably has a little bold statement in your Bible somewhere, the Great Commission. This is the final command that helps us to understand in a very real way the book of Acts and some of the history of the first century. Namely, this commission or this command helps us understand why the disciples after this moment live the way they did in this very radical way and why they died some of the deaths that they did. The Great Commission wasn't just for these 11 guys. It was for all who would come to be followers of Jesus, all disciples. And it's my conviction, however, that this is probably the most talked about command of Jesus corporately. Churches have it as their mission statement. They talk about, you know, the Great Commission. Our job is the Great Commission. But I would argue that this is probably the most disobeyed command personally. We talk about it as a church a lot. But personally... I would argue that most of us, I say us, disobey it. We don't think of it that way. We think of it as this grand, up here, 10,000 foot level thing. This is my mission. What if we just took it as just a simple command that Jesus is giving all his disciples? Now, these last words then are actually the hardest words I think Jesus spoke because they force us to do some real deep examination and ask ourselves, what does it mean to be obedient to this command? But another question that's even perhaps more difficult is at what point does my disobedience to this command evidence that I just don't believe? This is a tough command, and we don't talk about it in the church like that. We just talk about it as all these you know, as a foreign thing, we got to go on this great commission to reach the nations, that is true. But let's try to make it a little more personal today. If you haven't noticed, um, when someone is saved, they don't disappear. They're not immediately glorified and with Jesus. That would be pretty awesome when someone's like, I believe, poof, gone. You're like, just lost another one or Jesus gained another one. But that doesn't happen. When we are saved by Jesus, apparently, Jesus has something for us to do because he leaves us here. If you ask the average Christian, I don't even know what average Christian means, but the average Christian, maybe you're below average, above average, I don't know, but you, you get my point. If you ask a Christian to identify what is the primary purpose of your life, 
My guess is that few would turn to Matthew 28. Few of us would go talk about this command. We talk about a lot of things, but I doubt Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20 would be in the top 10. Perhaps it's a better question to ask a Christian, what are your priorities in life? See, there are a lot of good things, even biblical things, that God has commanded us to do. But we have much more to do than just build godly families, raise well-adjusted children, achieve successful careers, establish safe homes, and secure a prosperous retirement. Our lives include a lot of things we must do and responsibilities we have, but few of them are commanded as directly as this one. And I would argue, and again, since I'm not saying any names, if you feel a tickle in your heart, that ain't me. But many Christians... Many people who claim to be disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, are wasting their lives as a result of neglecting this command. Now, before Jesus ascended to heaven, it's very clear that at least with these 11 guys, he gave them something to do. And Acts, the book of Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles, reveals to us how they understood that. It's very specific. And his instruction here, if we just kind of, let's just take it for what it is. Let's not get, let's just not get real complicated about it. If we just take his instruction for what it is, first of all, it's not about what we ought do. Like, this is a good suggestion, should you have time. This is not some random activity that we should just participate in every now and then. I would argue that this is something that Jesus expects is going to characterize the lives of his followers. This should be primary, should be a priority. All disciples who are disciples are to be involved in making disciples. We'll talk about what that means, but that seems pretty clear. I mean, you don't have to be an academic or a theologian to, to, to understand that. And really what we're talking about, if, since we were in Genesis, for those who are newer, like we've been in Genesis for many months, and if you remember the initial command that, that God gave, the, the, the mission, if you will, that he gave Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply. So what this really is, it's not just a new command, it's really a restoration of an old command to be fruitful and multiply. It's a little bit different. It's not just physical, but it's certainly spiritual. Like, the gospel is uh, producing people who reproduce. I don't mean that physically. Certainly we grow families, but you understand spiritually. It's not just a command for pastors or guys with degrees or professional Christians, whatever that means. In your mind, the people that go, well, you get paid to love Jesus. You get paid to tell people about Jesus. You get paid, Sam, to make disciples. You realize that I probably get paid to do that because I was so 
horrible of a disciple maker that God said, I need to give you a job to do it, otherwise you'll never do it. I'm convinced of that. Great. It's not just for pastors and professional Christians, but it's for all, all Christians. Now, let's consider who he's telling this to, right? 40 days ago, prior to when he's speaking this, every one of these guys abandoned Jesus. A couple of them denied Jesus. They're hiding away. This is a very incomplete group of 11-ish friends who were once fishermen and tax collectors and laborers. In other words, let me bring you some level of comfort or remove some excuses that you might be building in your mind as the defense legal team comes to tell you why you don't have to obey this command. Jesus didn't give this to command to the gospel green berets. Right? These are gospel goofheads in many ways. Goofhead's not a word, but you get my meaning. These guys don't have degrees. A month ago, these guys were all hiding away, and I don't know Jesus, right? He spoke to a group of very imperfect men who even when they were in the presence of Jesus, it says, did you read that? Verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. You're in the presence of the resurrected Jesus and you're doubting? What exactly? I don't know about you, but that brings me a lot of comfort. And by comfort, I mean that the men and women that God sends on mission are not the capable or even the fully convinced 100% of the time. They're the ones that really, I think, just say, you know what, I'm going to obey. I'm going to obey. To their credit, they're at the mountain where, God said, where Jesus said, meet me. They'd obeyed that far. The question, though, is like, what helped these guys overcome their doubts to the point of martyrdom? Like, these guys who, in the moment, in the presence of Jesus, you know, having heard him teach, they're touching him, they're like, okay, I don't know, though. Okay, I guess we're supposed to do this. This is crazy. What got them to the point where they were dying for their convictions. I would argue that even if they were unsure that the future mission that they were just given would be successful or worth it, they became very convinced of Jesus' authority. That's what he says right after that. He says, Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. See, this is where Jesus begins. Our obedience to Jesus' command is not found in our ability. It's actually rooted in Jesus' authority. Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection demonstrated he had authority over everything there was to have authority over. If you think about his life, the things that he accomplished, right? He showed he had authority over nature. Like he's calming seas. He had authority over nations. He had authority over demons. He had authority over disease. He had authority over work. He had authority over sin. He had authority over death. There's not much left. 
that he didn't demonstrate he had authority over, that he had more power than, that he could control. The disciples were convinced that he had authority over every part of their lives and over the world itself and every life in it. I love how Paul writes it in Ephesians chapter 1 in talking about Jesus and his authority and the great power that God had demonstrated in Christ. He says, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name, that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as, gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. A lot of alls in there. It's like Paul wants to make sure that he really has all authority over everything and everyone. Well, what about, no, anyone who's in authority now, any power that you might be fearful has authority. He has authority over any name that comes now, any name that will come in the future. He has pure authority over everything. See, the problem with our obedience to this command is not understanding it. It is a belief in the authority of Christ. And I think in two ways. First, we have to believe that Jesus is actually authoritative in our lives. And what does that mean? Well, again, I'm not like talking at an academic super high level here. What I mean is simply this. When Jesus is authoritative in your life, he is supremely central to your life. He is supremely central. Well, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. That means that in Jesus is where I find my personal value. In Jesus is how I face trial. It is, he is how I make decisions. He is how I set my priorities. When Jesus is not authoritative in our lives, his commands and his instructions become optional and maybe not helpful to what I really want. When we hear our Lord commanding something, we, if he's authoritative in our life, we listen. Like, what does that mean? I want to ensure that I'm obeying what my Lord says to do. If he's not authoritative in our life, well, then you listen to someone else tell you what to do. Certainly you don't have to listen to that. But even if you get to that point, right, we also have to believe that Jesus is authoritative in the world. Well, what does that mean? Like, well, sometimes Jesus... And his authority never extends beyond our lives to the lives of others. We go, well, I mean, Jesus is my authority, but he's not really yours. You realize that's false? Whether someone recognizes the authority of Jesus or not, he is authoritative over all. There are those who recognize it and those who rebel against it. Those are the only two categories. And for those who believe in the authority of Jesus, we believe that he has the power to change. He has the power to transform anything and everything. Why? Because he's proven he has authority over nature, authority over demons, authority over sin, authority over death. He has authority over everything. We are to go into the world convinced of his authority, not just in our life, but in the lives of those who he will save. 
It's curious, if you read John chapter 4, Jesus speaking to a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman at the well. He has a long conversation with her in John 4, and she is totally just blown away by who he is. He basically reveals to her that I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. She runs back to town, tells the people, like, you're not going to believe who I met. This is what it says in John chapter 4. It says, from many Samaritans from that town that she was from believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. She went and said, you're not going to believe. He told me everything I ever did because she was um, a pretty broken woman. Verse 40 says, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, that being Jesus. And it says, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the Jews, the Samaritans. No, the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior and the only name given under heaven by which men, mankind, may be saved. He is the King. He is the Savior. He is the only way to be reconciled with God the Father. We have to enter into the world believing that. That's the kind of authority that he holds. And when you don't believe that kind of authority, you'll be timid in telling people about the love, forgiveness, and power of Jesus Christ. But when you're convinced of it, you are convinced that as you proclaim, something happens. That God's word and the message of the gospel does have the power to change somebody who seems unchangeable. When Jesus is not authoritative, we don't believe in his power to save. We believe that it can be thwarted by some authority or perhaps our ability or lack thereof. Fulfillment of Jesus' mission is not based on our ability. I want us to remember that because there's a thousand excuses as to why we won't use or why we will use to not obey a command to make disciples and to tell people about Jesus. When you are convinced that it's about Jesus' authority and not our ability, you will find yourself much more free and confident. When we believe that Jesus is authoritative in our personal lives, we'll actually obey Jesus' commands without delay, excuse, or complaint, but with great delight. And we'll also, with this command, go with a deep belief and confidence that he is going to accomplish his mission through my faithfulness, regardless of how successful it is. See, our job is just to be faithful. The disciples, like, didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but they weren't supposed to project 10, you know, years down the road or even maybe 10 hours. They were just supposed to go. They were responsibly faithful. Let God worry about the fruitfulness. Even if they failed, they were being faithful. It wasn't about the result. It was about the command. We always evaluate whether we're going to obey something um, or do something based off of how we can measure the benefit or lack thereof. If I can see how this works out, this will, okay, this, this should work. This will be good. That's not faithfulness. Like we talked about last week, faithfulness and, and hoping and moving is especially true or powerful when it doesn't look like it's going to work out. I'm going to say something here. It's going to be crazy. You 
this person's probably going to totally reject me, whatever. And you just go, and suddenly they're like, yeah, I needed to hear that. What? Imagine if, if it was based off of, of us. It's kind of like preaching, honestly. Like, there are people that will um, hate the sermon, like the sermon. And there's a temptation, like, if no one says anything. Now, don't, I'm not trying to get compliments or something, right? Okay, if no one says anything after a Sunday, there's been times where I, I, I you'll go into like a Monday morning depression. Oh, I failed. <laughs> right? No one said anything. I remember having a conversation, conversation with God about that. Like, how do I know if anything's effective? He's like, well, what would you like, Sam? Would you like people coming up and going, man, that was amazing. You see how many downloads that got? Oh. So who are you thinking about now, Sam? No, I'm thinking about myself. Like when you start thinking about whether it's going to fail or succeed based off of you, you have lost the whole purpose. And I think the glorious thing about going on mission for Jesus is when you know you better show up, this ain't going to work. Because you're not thinking about yourself, you're fully dependent upon him. And I'm pretty sure that's what these disciples were thinking. That's why it's like they're worshipful and doubting. He's like, perfect. You're like, you love Jesus, but you're not sure, let's go. Because then Jesus would be getting the glory. But question remains, though, what exactly is Jesus commanding them to do? Like, what, what, is, what is this we're supposed to do? And again, I think we tend to overcomplicate this. We make it very complex so as to go, well, I certainly couldn't do that. One thing we do know is that the word go is there. So what that means is that Christians are not called to be fed and fat. Just sitting there, this is good. Let me consume more and get really knowledgeable and never open my mouth or serve anybody. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be a moving people, a sent people, a people who go. And if nothing else, where we go, what we, okay, we'll get to that. Obedience and mission and discipleship is never accidental. It's not like, you know, oops, I just stumbled into obedience. Oops, I just stumbled into discipleship. It's always intentional. That, if that alone, you just take go, what does that mean? It means we're supposed to be thinking about it, intending about it, planning for it. We're intentional about it. Okay, at least we get that part. And then the disciples are supposed to do this to all nations. Oh, great. So I'm supposed to go to a foreign country. I'm supposed to go to Ethiopia. Why do we always think, I always think of Ethiopia when I think foreign country. I'm not sure why. I think it's because I grew up in that, that era where they always had those commercials with the kids and the big bellies, and they're all like, like, oh, Ethiopia, give me money, right? Ethiopia is like, that's like the world to me, I guess. So there's lots of other places. But foreign, like all nations, other nations. And really that, that word is about like really families, people groups, they'll understand it to be. And many disciples would die taking that command very literally. Matthew, right? He was arrested teaching in Ethiopia. He was nailed to the ground with short spears and beheaded. Matthew. I already told you about Thomas. James, I believe, was shoved off a temple, top of a temple. He survived, and then they killed him when he landed. 
All these guys, they went and they died in different parts of the country, or different parts of the world other than Jerusalem. So they literally took that. Now, that be said, there are people here, some of you, should go to foreign countries and you should make disciples. Some of you are called to do that. I don't know who you are, but I believe there's some there here that should. But that's certainly not all of us. And I think when we define that or understand it just as all nations for all, like, that must be foreign. What do we all do? Well, I can't do that. So I guess I get a, you know, free pass out of the Great Commission. But what if we just said, well, we realize that not everyone's going to go on mission to a foreign country, though more people should. I think right now there's over 6,000 people groups who've never heard the gospel. But I would argue that most of us stop at our own doorsteps and we wrongly confuse discipleship with shepherding just our own children or grandchildren. We think, well, I've got kids. Those are the disciples that I'm raising. Yes, you should do that. Our families are certainly the first places that we should fulfill this command, but they are not the only place. The disciples, I think, are given a vision for the world and for mission beyond the comfort of their own families, beyond the comfort of their own neighborhoods, beyond the comfort of their own lives. It's a command to see beyond, I believe, what is right in front of you, what is most convenient. And the mission is pretty clear. We are to go and make disciples, baptize, and teach. And we're to do that in our homes, but beyond our homes. What does that even mean, beyond our homes? Let's just assume this is happening in your homes, and we'll talk about maybe what it looks like outside of your home. I would say discipleship is much more, and and Daniel spoke about this um, a couple weeks ago in biblical counseling, uh, equipped seminar. But discipleship is much more than just sitting in a class studying the Bible, though that's important. Biblical study can happen in seven weeks, which is what our typical studies last, but discipleship takes much longer. Discipleship is probably better described as walking, mentoring, or educating someone else in an effort to connect them with Jesus. It's what one commentator called a very slow word. All these words are very slow. And in our fast-paced culture, they don't work very well or they're not very attractive. But if Jesus is our example of what it looks like, which I think is a pretty good one, to disciple people, what we see is that it is a personal investment over a long period of time in very specific people to help them learn and about and follow Jesus more closely. It's a personal investment. And it's certainly not always convenient, and it's not always a systematic, perfect process. Well, study these seven things, and then you move on. And It's often very costly. It's often very messy. But it's how Jesus builds his kingdom. Every disciple is called to be a disciple maker. And I believe that we fulfill God's greater purpose for our lives by spending time with people in personal ministry like that. And as we spend time with people, not just our family, we speak the gospel to their ears, 
And we live the gospel before their eyes so they can see what it means to be a Christian man or woman of the way. This is not just the job of pastors or professional disciples or Christians, but all of us who call upon the name of the Lord. Personal discipleship should be a planned part of every Christian's life rhythms and given as much time and energy as we give to our recreation, to planning you know, our jobs or our careers or whatever projects we have going on. And the question is, are we doing that? Are, are we just, regardless of what it looks like, can we, can we point to our lives and go, well, this is where I'm doing this. And guess what? Preaching, I don't get a free pass because, well, you're making disciples as a job. Lucky you. Like, I'm still responsible to personally invest in people beyond the pulpit. And I would argue that if you're not ready to disciple, which many, I'm not, I'm not ready to do that. I've only been a Christian for 40 years. I can't do that. If you're not ready, okay, let's just say, I, know, I don't know what that looks like. No one's ever done that for me. Done what? Walked with you? Talked with Jesus with you? Been available to, to dialogue about your problems and lead you back to the Word? Okay, well, it's just, if you are not ready to disciple, then you should be discipled right now until you are. That's the key. Well, I'm not ready to disciple, can't do that. Okay, so who are you going to invite in to maybe and ask to disciple you? And that requires some humility, and it requires especially from some of you older men, a desire to do that. Younger men, desire to ask for that. But the command also includes baptism, which is kind of weird. Uh, baptism is much more than getting wet for Jesus. It's, it's also more than identification with Jesus. Did you know that? It begins with identification you know, with Jesus Christ, I'm buried with him, my life is dead, and I'm risen to new life, but it's also the initiation, if you will, into God's people. The fact that it has baptism there is talking about the idea of not only do you become a believer, not only do you become a son and daughter of the king, you become a brother and sister in Christ. Baptism involves engagement in a community. In other words, it's like, preach the gospel, disciple, and then we gather together, identify together through baptism is that process. We enter in, and now we are family, and I'm both accountable to you and responsible for you. My hope is, um, I, I certainly want to plant more churches. I personally don't want to plant another church. God can do what he's going to do, but I pray he doesn't do that. But here's what my desire is, honestly. The church hopping mentality is so frustrating for me because what I desire more than anything is to get old with y'all. Is to, to truly like uh, see generations of Christians coming, and they'll go, people will come and go in terms of you know, kids grow up and they move out, but like, man, wouldn't that be awesome to just know each other for years? 
just pressing for years. And even when it gets difficult, like, oh, yeah, you bug me. Like, yeah, you bug me too. But we press through it and we stick as family. That's the biggest problem with church hopping, where people never really commit and, and say, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm staying. And we're going to be family. And we're going to know each other. And we're going to grow old together. We're going to laugh about what we did five, ten years ago in the past. That, for me, is glorious. And that really is, is the idea of, like, when people become believers, they're baptized into a people. He doesn't just save you. He saves you with a family. And that's part of the mission. It, being part of the community is part of the commandment. The book of Acts reveals how the disciples lived this out, right? How they understood this. If you check it out in Acts chapter 2, right? They had 120 people. I was talking about disciples of the world. They're all together waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. He comes and in Acts 2, Peter stands up and says his first sermon. He preaches this really simple, awesome sermon. And then Acts chapter 2, verse 41 the last thing he says is, repent and be baptized. And what happens? Verse 41, so those who received the word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. For 120 to 3,000. That was a pretty awesome sermon, right? It says, and what happened next? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Baptism leads them into community where they love one another. It didn't cause community. It was the progression. But as a community initiated by baptism, we see that not only do they begin to love one another, but we see in there they commit themselves to learning. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the last part of the command. As I said, Matthew is himself a teacher, teaching us that Jesus was a teacher who wants us all to be teachers. If we're truly committed to making disciples, we will all do the last part of that command, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And that includes the Great Commission, which is a lesson to continue I believe that that second part of the Great Commission, or the final part of the Great Commission, is the most ignored. Because we don't feel qualified to teach. Especially not all that Jesus commanded, right? What? Do you know all Jesus taught? And that's like, well, I don't know all Jesus taught. So, well, you know he taught this. He could teach someone that. Perhaps he means everything he taught over the last 40 days that we don't have recorded? Probably not. It's important to remember that Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. And he's been there several times, but it's on that mountain that the Sermon on the Mount was given. It's his longest recorded teaching and the longest book of teaching. 
from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And it begins with the Beatitudes. You've probably heard of the Beatitudes before, which is really a, um, not a prescription of what a Christian should do, but more of a description of what happens when grace grabs somebody. What it really does, if you read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, I think more than anything, it gives a Christian a very right view of himself. It reminds you of exactly who you are, and particularly who you are in Christ, which leads you to a right view of who you are in the world. Jesus says in that one sermon, which is very long, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that we are very different, that we have a different identity, we have a different loyalty, we have a different eternal trajectory, that we are loved, that we are blessed, that we are protected, that we are secure. These are all things that that sermon preaches. And then it reminds us that we should not, therefore, be anxious. We should not, therefore, be hypocritical. We should not, therefore, be self-righteous. In fact, we should be a light and salt in the world. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And I would argue that if you want to know what should we be teaching, as I spend time with people, what open up Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and just spend time in Sermon on the Mount. It would very clearly tell you what Jesus has taught. And we could do a lot worse than spend more time talking with one another, investing in one another, spending our own individual time in the Sermon on the Mount because that teaches not how Christians ought to live, but how they're meant to live. I'll conclude with this. Just before Jesus ascends, uh, he reveals the most important part of his command, which particularly how to fulfill it. And I don't mean what strategy, what program, what Bible study, whatever. I mean what power makes it possible. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The mission of God is only successful insofar as we are dependent upon Jesus' presence as we go. When Jesus says, behold, he's saying like, look, this is the reason I can command you to do something that you feel completely unqualified and unable to do. Consider all the excuses that we make as a people for not taking this command literally and for not obeying it and for not being intentional about it in our lives I don't have the capacity right now. I don't have the bandwidth. I don't have the margin. I don't have the ability. I don't have the opportunity. I don't have this. I don't have that. Let me just tell you now, you are thinking wrongly. This is not about what you think you need or who you think you are. Jesus clearly tells us it's about what God says you have and who God says you are and you are to depend upon him. For what? You depend on him for even desire. I don't desire this. Better pray. You're desiring, my hope is, obedience. So pray for it. Depend on him for desire. Depend on Jesus for margin. I don't have room. Ask him to help create room. Depend on Jesus for courage. No way, I got nothing to share. I think you probably have more to share than you Possibly, no. Depend on Jesus for opportunity. Depend on Jesus for wisdom. And remember this truth. If you hear nothing else, 
remember this truth. Jesus never commands anything that he doesn't promise to fulfill in you. He never commands you to do something that he doesn't promise to fulfill through you and in you. So if he says, go, if he says, make disciples, he says, I'm with you, you can do it. I don't think I can. Well, you really can't, but I can do it through you. That's what he's saying. At the beginning of Acts chapter 1, there were 120 disciples in Jerusalem. By the end of Acts chapter 2, there were 3,000 disciples in Jerusalem that really represented the entire world. By the end of Acts 28, there were thousands more believing. And let's not forget, this was well before they had radio, TV, internet, or any number of other things that we might say was helpful today. It happened because disciples took the command seriously to introduce others to Jesus and simply teach them what he said. Basic. Chris Rich reminded me, Chris Rich is the pastor of Damascus Road Church, and I'll end with this. It's amazing what happens with um, a small group of people who are willing just to be faithful. Not thinking they're capable. Damascus Road Church started in my house with, I don't know, 11, 12 people. Some of them are here. Aaron, who prayed, was there. Mark and Cheryl were there. And we were like, wow, this would be great. What do you imagine, right? Damascus Road Church in Marysville celebrated its 10th Easter this year. And at the very first Easter, there was probably 90-ish people. From that church, some faithful men, one being Jim Fickert, who certainly never, ever, ever wanted to preach, he told me, this is going to be recorded, it's going to be awesome. The first time he ever preached at Damascus Road, he was so scared. That's right, Jim, hope you're hearing this. So scared. I walked in, I said, hey man, what's the worst that could happen? He said, um, I could pass out and wet myself in front of the church. <laughs> I said, yeah, that'd be bad. Let's not do that. Let's pray. So I prayed for him and he preached an awesome sermon. He was not convinced he should plant a church. His wife left open Exodus chapter 3 on his bed one time, which is Moses arguing with God, telling him, I can't do this. And he went, oh, great. <laughs> so Communion Church was planted in 2011. Snohomish was planted in 2013-ish. So in 10 years, this last Easter, if we just did the numbers, there were almost 1,000, 960 people over three churches which in 10 years, that's 10 times what that first year was. Now, we never wrote down like, we went 1,000 in 10 years. All I'm saying is that those who are just faithful to walk into that which seems like, uh, God takes care of it. God takes care of it. We're not called to, to be fruitful and to plan it out perfectly. We're just called to be obedient and trust that God will help us do what he has called us to do. And I pray that we will do that. And it starts not on grand things. It doesn't start with planting churches. It doesn't start with going into to Ethiopia. It starts with taking personal investment in the people who are here right now. And just saying, you know what? I want to just teach you more about Jesus. I want to tell you about my experience walking with Jesus. It's basic. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for the glorious invitation you have given us to join you on a mission that started thousands of years ago. Lord, we confess that we have nothing to offer to fulfill this mission. We don't have any power in ourselves to change anything. We need you desperately. Father, I pray you'll convince us that obedience to this command is a path of true joy. That you'll convince us each individually that we actually can and should obey this command and be intentional about making disciples in some way. Father, for those who right now need to be discipled, I pray they'll have the courage to reach out. They'll have the courage to ask. And for those who are disciples, for those who have something to offer and they know it, I pray that they will be ready for the opportunity and they'll pray for the opportunity to disciple somebody, to spend some time going through God's word with them. Lord, ultimately, I pray you will continue to build your church through the most simplest of means, through simple, personal discipleship. Would you give us the courage to obey you? Would you give the wisdom that we need to proclaim you? Would you help us to glorify you with the time you have given us to make this a priority because you said it was to be a priority in our lives. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.